uh, joy and privilege this morning to reintroduce um, Bart Bile and his wife Michelle and their kids PJ and Solange. Welcome, Biles. Great to have you here. And the Biles were part of our church. Wow, I couldn't believe it. It's like way back to like I think 2011 to about 2013, and then part of our church plant in Charlottetown um, for a few years. And I recorded a podcast with Bart yesterday, so that will come out in July. So we had a bit more time to kind of share that story, so you can take a listen to that in a few weeks' time. But Bart, why don't you come and just want to welcome you and pray for you as you come. Bart leads a uh, church in Tbilisi, Georgia, so not USA, but Georgia as in across the pond, and uh, Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. And so Bart, it's so thrilling to have you here. So let me just pray for you, and then we'll open up God's Word together. So Father, we just want to thank you that <coughs> Bart, Michelle, and family are able to be with us again. And Lord, we just pray now your anointing upon Bart to preach your word. God, would you open our hearts? Lord, continue, Lord, to speak through and fill them now with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bart. Great job. And well, thank you, Joe. It's so good for us to be back here. And we've been looking forward to this and anticipating this for a few years. You wouldn't believe the roadblocks you have to jump through to be able to preach at this church and how far around the world you have to go to gain access to this pulpit, but I hope it's all worth it today. Um, we are especially looking forward to the prayer meeting tonight because we're here on this like surgical mission to like suck in all the prayer and all the ministry and all the blessing and leave you as dry, empty husks, and we're going to get on the maritime bus to Charlottetown tomorrow morning. So I'm not going to talk very much at all about myself today because, you know, we've been so blessed. We were so blessed in our brief 18 months in this church. I want to come and bless you guys with something, not talking about myself, but talking about the glorious triumph of Christ our God, which is what you really need to hear about and I really need to hear about constantly. You know, the Christian faith is an ecstatic experience, by which I mean we literally go outside of ourselves and the new center of our existence is not here in my own heart and in my own soul and in my own life, but my life is hid with Christ in God. And all my faith and all my hope and all my love is directed upwards towards Him. This was really driven home to me a couple years ago. We were in Copenhagen, we were leaving Denmark, and it was a cold, miserable, drizzly day. We had to walk out on the tarmac, and we were like shivering in our light clothing, and we got on the plane, and as the plane took off, there were beads of water streaming um, sideways on the, the windows. And then we went through the clouds, and above the clouds, it was bright and blue and sunny, and I was so struck by that fact. I mean, I must be an incredibly stupid person because I've taken hundreds of flights and never realized it's always bright and sunny above the clouds. And it was actually profoundly consoling to me because it was though God was saying to me, no matter how dark and cold and stormy it is down below, at the throne of God, it is always sunny and serene. We have all sorts of garbage in our lives we're dealing with. There's deep pain, profound troubles, but there's no stress in the throne room of God right now. Jesus is on the throne, and everything is proceeding according to His great 
plan. So let's take the next bit just to fix our eyes, to glue our eyeballs on Jesus and his glorious triumph. My text today is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 68, the prayer book of Jesus. It should be your favorite book of the Bible. If it is not, please repent immediately and open your heart to this psalm. It is a bit on the longish side, not Psalm 119 long. I, I knew the limits of what I could demand from Joe, but it is a longish psalm, but let's not rush through this and listen to what God is saying to us through Psalm chapter 68. Listen to the word of the Lord. May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. As smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away. As wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing praise to His name, extol Him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord, and rejoice before Him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land." When you went out before your people, O God, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it, and from your bounty, O God, you provided for the poor. The Lord announced the word, and great was the company of those who proclaimed it, Kings and armies flee in haste. In the camps, men divide the plunder. Even while you sleep among the campfires, the wings of my dove are sheathed with silver, its feathers with shining gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings in the land, it was like snow fallen on Zalman. The mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. Why gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God, our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan, I will bring them from the depths of the sea, that you may plunge your feet in the blood of your foes while the tongues of your dogs have their share. Your procession has come into view, O God, the procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. In front are the singers, after them the musicians, with them are the maidens playing tambourines. Praise God in the great congregation. Praise the Lord in the assembly of Israel. There's the little tribe of Benjamin leading them. There are the great throng of Judah's princes 
and there the princes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Summon your power, O God. Show us your strength, O God, as you have done before. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Rebuke the beast among the reeds, the herd of bulls among the calves of the nations. Humbled, may it bring bars of silver. Scatter the nations who delight in war. Envoys will come from Egypt. Cush will submit herself to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides the ancient skies above, who thunders with mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. You are awesome, O God, in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And let me pray as we open this up together. Almighty, glorious, awesome God, we bow before you as the God who saves. From you and from you alone comes escape from death. And we pray now that you would open our hearts by your mighty Holy Spirit. May he reveal the glory of your Son to us and fill us with the resurrection joy of Jesus Christ himself. And as we hear your gospel proclaimed, may we see our Lord, our Redeemer, the crucified one who has risen and ascended. And may we too sing songs of joy before you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I have one single goal this morning, and that is to fill your hearts with the exuberant joy that Christ Jesus is alive and he is victorious. We're just going to do Easter all over again in June, if that's okay, because we can never tire of hearing of the message that Jesus is risen. You know, we have not gathered today, and the people of God are not gathering around the globe today to pay homage to a dead prophet whose flesh has long since rotted away in a grave somewhere in Palestine. We worship a king and a lord and a commander who lives even now at the right hand of God who is present among us by his Holy Spirit, and whose return we look for every day. Because thank God, the story of the gospel does not end with the crucifixion. Of course, we do rejoice in what Jesus has done for us at the cross, that he has paid for the sins of the whole world, and that does mean freedom and liberation and forgiveness. But if the story stopped there, it would not be good news. And the cross, far from being something joyful, would be something despairing and depressing and a horrible tragedy. As St. Paul said, if Christ Jesus has not risen from the dead, we are of all people the most to be pitied. If Jesus isn't risen, what on earth are we doing here this morning? Why are we wasting our time worshiping someone who's dead and gone? We should be off snorting crack cocaine. We should be hiring prostitutes. We should be eating and drinking because tomorrow we die. And life is basically hopeless and full of despair. We might as well suck whatever little joy we can. But in fact, Christ has risen from the dead. This morning. And we're not looking this morning to a rotten corpse for salvation. 
Our eyes are lifted on high where Jesus, our Savior, is sitting, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. The good news of the gospel is the announcement that Jesus, who was crucified, is now risen. That was the message that was first proclaimed by that mighty throng of women who first met Jesus at the tomb, and then through the great company of apostles and those down through the ages. And if you read through the, the book of Acts, as Luke records the sermons of those courageous people who preach Christ from city after city in the Mediterranean world, you'll notice that their message was not look back to the cross for salvation. That's not what they were preaching. They were preaching this. This Jesus, who was crucified by the hands of wicked men, God has raised up. And he's been exalted to the Father's right hand to bestow repentance and forgiveness and life on anyone who believes in him. All preaching in Acts goes through the cross to the resurrection. Because if you stop at the cross, there is no gospel, there's no salvation, there's no good news, and we're just like those disciples despairing on Saturday because our Messiah has been defeated and we're still dead in our sins. After the message today, we are going to sing a very, very old hymn that goes back at least to the 6th century, probably before. It's called the Paschal Treparion. A Treparion means like a very tiny little hymn. This is only three lines long, and it goes like this. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. The people of God have been singing that song for at least 1,500 years. And in Georgia, which is the world's oldest Eastern Orthodox country, on Easter morning, it's still dark outside, and the faithful gather outside the door of the church, and they begin chanting this hymn as the sun rises, as they wait for the doors to swing open. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. And as the, the faithful chant those verses, in between that refrain, the priest reads selections from, of all places in the Bible, Psalm 68. So this is a very old pairing. And it might seem a little odd because Psalm 68 is not the first place most of us would go to looking for a text on the resurrection or the ascension. But the early church who could feel the dawn of Easter shining on their faces could not help but see Jesus when they read the Psalms and when they read the Old Testament. Do you remember in the last chapter of Luke, chapter 24, I believe, on the afternoon of Easter, the one thing that Jesus does is he goes and he meets up with a couple despairing disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. I actually found that profoundly moving, that of all the places Jesus could have gone to and all the important people he could have manifested himself to, he chooses to walk with two people who are just struck down by doubt. 
And strangely, their eyes are kept from recognizing Jesus, but then he begins to open the Scriptures to them, and he explains that all these things in the Law and the Prophets were written to demonstrate that the Messiah must suffer and then enter into His glory. And it's while they are hearing the Scriptures being exposited, showing who Jesus is, it's then that their hearts begin to burn within them. And my prayer is that as we go through Psalm 68 together, our hearts too will burn as we see the Messiah in this psalm. Now, Psalm 68 is actually considered perhaps the most difficult of all the psalms out of the 150 psalms. And I didn't realize that when I, well, back in November I sat down to write this, this sermon and then I came across a remark on Saturday, of course, from a long-dead Frenchman from the 17th century, Simeon de Mouy, and he called Psalm 68 the scourge of critics and the torment of commentators. Not the kind of encouraging thing pastors hope to find on Saturday when it's too late to change their text. Now, I like a good beating just as much as the next person, but it is a tough, tough text. But though the details are obscure and you will have questions, and Joe will be happy to answer any questions you have, the overall theme of Psalm 68 is very clear, the overall mood that runs through it. And here it is. When God fights and conquers evil, the lowly rejoice. When God destroys evil, the lowly sing songs of joy. Here are God's suffering people crying out to God for deliverance. And Yahweh himself their creator rides to their rescue on the storm clouds. And in God's terrifying presence, the wicked are just blown away like smoke. And they welt, they melt like wax before the fire. The warrior God shows up and he tosses aside kings and emperors. And Pharaoh and his horses and chariots, he drowns in the Red Sea as God's trembling people go through safely on dry land. God doesn't do this because He is a bloodthirsty God who delights in violence and loves killing people. God rouses Himself on behalf of the poor and the oppressed and those who cry out to Him. Now, that is actually quite weird and quite bizarre when you compare that with the ancient pagan religions of Israel's neighbors, in Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, the basic function of religion was to reinforce the authority of those at the top, the semi-divine king and the land-owning nobles and the subhuman slaves toiling in the mud below were told, the will of the gods for your life, your short little worthless life, is only to serve those who are above you. The religion of the Old Testament is nothing like that. And later kings and nobles and rich people in Israel will find the law and the prophets intensely irritating because the God of Israel is a God who shows up and in verse 5 of Psalm 68 he declares, here is who I am. I am a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling." It turns out that the God of Israel is a very unusual God because He deploys His awesome power not to support the rich and the powerful, 
He deploys his power on behalf of the weak and the small and the helpless. And this strange God steps forth and he says, I am the God of abandoned children and vulnerable women. I am the God of the slave and the refugee and the migrant worker. These are my people. I am the God of the physically handicapped and the emotionally and mentally broken. I take the side of all of life's losers, those who are looking in from the outside, those who can do nothing but cry out in anguish to me. These are my people, God says, and my boast is that I am the God who vindicates and defends and rescues and rides to the help of those who are helpless. And so when God sees the misery of Israel toiling away in Egypt, when he hears their piteous cries under the lash of Pharaoh, he's roused and in holy fury, God goes to destroy Pharaoh and to break the chains of oppression. And the book of Exodus tells the story of how God goes into the greatest empire of the ancient world and just destroys it from the inside. He demolishes it. And he leads the march of the prisoners from the land of slavery through the wilderness. And God guides and protects and provides for them. And then he settles them in the promised land, the land of milk and honey that God just gives to these people as a gift. And it's there of all places in the tiny little nation of Israel, it's barely a nation, just a loose confederation of 12 tribes, it's there that the God of all the earth chooses to make his home. And in this psalm, Psalm 68, uh, David pictures these mighty snow-capped mountains of Bashan across the border in Syria, and they're looking over their frontier, and they're gazing in envy at Mount Zion. Why is God choosing to dwell in that little mountain? I've been to Jerusalem with my family, and Mount Zion is honestly not a very impressive place, even in its own immediate surroundings. It's basically a hill with some ambitions. <laughs> I don't know if, if anyone here has visited PEI and gone to their ski resort in Brookvale, it's really cute how proud the islanders are of their mighty mountain range. I didn't have the heart to tell them. I, I couldn't actually see it. And as someone from British Columbia, it would have honestly been cruel to show them pictures of what real mountains actually look like. Mount Zion is a little bit like that. There are just so many more awe-inspiring peaks that God could choose to dwell in. So many more majestic, powerful, mighty nations that God could make his home. But it's Mount Zion that God has chosen, chosen to call his home address. That's where he's going to build his temple. With this little helpless nation of Israel, which is just a tiny little grain caught between the huge grinding gears of these massive world empires around them. These are the people that God in his sovereign mercy, in his inscrutable grace, has chosen to adopt to be the people of his presence. Now, I should point out that 
although David wrote most of this psalm, he, he actually stole his first verse from somewhere else. He copied Psalm 68 verse 1 from a ritual sentence that the people of Israel heard every single day in the wilderness as they set out on their day's, for, on their day's journey with the ark centuries beforehand. Assuming they traveled six days a week and they were wandering for 40 years, they heard this sentence at least 12,000 times. It was just drilled into their brains. And according to Numbers 10, whenever the ark set out, this gold-encrusted chest that symbolically held the presence of God, covered by the cherubim, these awesome angels and their overshadowing wings, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And now it's 500 years later, and the musician David, whose heart burns with the love and the glory of God, he has the privilege of leading the final procession of the ark to its final resting place on Mount Zion. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suppose that David composed Psalm 68 for that occasion. He took this ancient creed, and then in his holy love for God and his imagination and his fervor, he took that little kernel, and then he began kind of riffing on it and improvising on it and developing and expanding it to this whole lengthy psalm of praise that we heard. A new song for Israel, taking the old truths for a new time to give and celebrate a new awareness of the glory and grace of their covenant Lord. So imagine these Levites in their white garments, they're marching with their holy burden up through the winding streets of Jerusalem, and they're musicians, and they're playing their castanets, and their harps, and their, limber, their, their timbrels, and their cymbals, and, their, and King David is up front in his boxers, dancing with all his might before the Lord, and the singers are leading the crowd in this chant, praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Because when God fights and conquers evil, the lowly sing songs of joy. And David's heart is so full that he knows this God is far too glorious to be confined to this little city and this tiny mountain and this miniature nation. Do we feel like the praises this congregation sang this morning are worthy and adequate for the praise of God? How could this possibly be sufficient? And in his prophetic imagination, David sees envoys coming up from Africa, from Ethiopia, from Cush, modern-day Sudan, and they're coming to submit to God. And David is summoning all nations, sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth, sing praise to the Lord, because Yahweh the Creator, Israel's Redeemer, is not just the possession of one little nation. He must be the joy of the whole earth, and the farthest islands and coastlands must be summoned to come and worship God in their own strange tongues. And even the rocks and trees are called to join the anthem of praise to the one whose lavish bounty is just continuously poured out on all that He has made. And so, although the Old Testament, of course, is the story of the 12 tribes of Israel, you get this strong sense even there that God's going to do something much greater, that He's going to send a king far more glorious than David or Solomon, 
one to whom even the greatest kings and emperors are going to bow in submission. Now, we have very good biblical license for taking Psalm 68 and applying it to Jesus because that's what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 4. I think Mark's going to get there in his series sometime in 2026. <laughs> Mark chapter 4, so he's not here. I can, I can steal a bit of his thunder. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul quotes verse 18 of the psalm. You might have recognized it as I read it earlier. In Ephesians 4 verse 7, Paul says, to each of us, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. As we heard spiritual and saw spiritual gifts being exercised, this is what Paul's talking about, there's graces being poured out on the church. That's why it says, and here Paul quotes our psalm, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. Whoa, we're actually experiencing the fulfillment of Psalm 68 right in this congregation this morning. And Paul goes on to ask, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so Christ himself, he goes on, gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. That is a remarkable quotation, actually, because Psalm 68 is not a messianic psalm. There's no reference to God's anointed king in here, no reference to some future prophetic figure. The subject of this entire psalm, the only person it is speaking about is God himself. And verse 18 is very clearly talking about God ascending on high, taking all these captives and gifts. And it is stunning that Paul has no hesitation in opening his Bible to Psalms, taking a psalm about the worship of Yahweh and going and applying it to Christ and saying, this God, this Yahweh, this creator of all the earth is Jesus Christ himself. So here are the earliest followers of Jesus who somehow have come to the unshakable conviction that Jesus of Nazareth, who was born and lived and walked and died among them, that he had risen from the dead and he was actually the same I am who I am who had led the people of Israel out of Egypt centuries earlier. And now the Lord God himself has come in human form to do what the book of Exodus was only faintly picturing, to destroy death forever. And so when we confess the Nicene Creed, as my own church family often does as we celebrate communion every week, when we confess that this Jesus Christ suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and was buried and rose and ascended again to the right hand of God, we are chanting the saga of the Son of God who going forth to war, of Christ Jesus striding alone into the darkness to face the dragon all by himself, to grapple with the enemy, and when all seems lost, he emerges on the third day from the tomb. He's not staggering out of there as a barely resuscitated corpse. 
He's striding out in the power of an indestructible life, having put the enemy to flight forever. Who is this enemy that we are talking about? Scripture really describes a three-headed apocalyptic monster called sin, Satan, and death. God's enemies and our enemies. Sin. I'm talking about sin with a capital S because sin is not just a choice that we make, although it is that. We're responsible for it. Of course it is, but sin is also a kind of malevolent power that has its hooks deep inside all of us, and it enslaves human beings, forcing us to continuously poison ourselves, and despite ourselves, we end up making these completely self-destructive choices. And then sin binds us in shame and guilt. It traps us in an addiction that we somehow love and we hate at the same time. And it keeps us in the slavery to prevent us from going to God in freedom and love and joy. Sin with a capital S. And if you've ever tried to struggle against the power of sin in your own life, you know it is a fearsome enemy. The second head of this monster is Satan. This glorious fallen angel who has now lured humanity to its ruin in the garden. And this Satan, this adversary, is surrounded by hordes of demons, of fellow fallen angels, and he's constantly going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. He hates God's creation. And he especially hates human beings because we are created in the image of God and the glory of the Creator shines off our faces and that makes him extremely angry. And his only ambition is to cause as much misery and torment and devastation as he can. And it's Satan's malice that is at the bottom of all wars and genocides and sex trafficking and exploitation of the poor and abuse of children. That's all Satan wanting those things to happen, delighting in that, that terror and that pain that he can cause. Oh, and if that's not enough, there's a third head to this, to this enemy, which is death, the terrifying fate that awaits us all. Even now, the candle is flickering sand is sliding through our fingers, and we cannot stop it. And one day, you are going to run out of time. And that's it. Extinguished, obliterated, erased. And all of our money, and all our technology, and all of our medicine cannot stop We cannot prevent ourselves from falling into that darkness. Sin, Satan, and death are triple-headed enemies. Not that we're in any shape to put up much of a fight. We can, like, kind of writhe feebly, but the enemy laughs at us because we're completely under its domination, unable to escape. Sin, Satan, and death are our enemies. They're the enemy of every single human being, whether they realize it or not. But they're not just our enemies. They are God's enemies. Let God arise. May his enemies be scattered. Verse 1 of Psalm 68. 
Sin and Satan and death are ruining God's creation, and that makes God angry. These are trespassers. These are interlopers. These are outsiders who don't belong, and they are taking the most precious and beautiful things that God has created, human beings who are so precious to God and so beloved by Him, and Satan is just destroying and defacing and wrecking everything that God has made. And God doesn't just kind of sit idly by and go, well, that's, that's really too bad. But I guess that's the way it's going to be, and I tried to have this creation, and I guess it just didn't work out. Whatever happens, happens. If they're dead, destroyed, and lost, it's no skin off my nose. That's not what God says. When this happens, God is being personally attacked and insulted and offended and mocked by this triple-headed enemy. And so the Son of God goes forth to war, to fight the strong man, to strip him of his armor, to bind him, and then to take over his house, to take all of his plunder and lead the prisoners out with singing. How does, how does this happen? How has the risen Jesus crushed the enemy? Well, here's how the the first Christians in the, in the early centuries of the church would have described it to you. They would tell you that when death swallowed Jesus, it was attempting to digest the indigestible. You know, as a man, as a human being, Jesus can do one thing that God cannot do, which is die. But as God, Jesus is immortal and incorruptible. And St. Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century had this famous image of a fish hook that God was dangling his line into the water. And he described St. Gregory, he described the humanity of Jesus as the bait on that hook. But the hook itself is Jesus' divinity and Jesus' Godhead. And here comes death out of the murky darkness at the bottom of the stream, death which has gulped down so many human beings, millions and millions and millions without any resistance, and he takes the bait and he bites into Jesus to gulp him down. He ingests the hook. But as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, it was impossible for death to hold on to Jesus. Impossible. Because death is actually nothingness. It's a zero. It is a negation. It's not something God created. It has no being whatsoever. Just like darkness has no reality in itself, it's simply the absence of light. And the moment you walk into a dark room and flip the switch and the light comes on, the darkness vanishes instantaneously. And in the same way, when the light and glory of God goes into the grave and begins to glow and shine there, death is instantaneously overwhelmed and destroyed. There's this icon uh, on the screen that's been on the screen the whole time that I wanted to show you. This is an Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox icon of the resurrection, and Michelle took this picture at a little fifth century church, like five minutes away from her house, but this is just absolutely standard Orthodox iconography that you would see everywhere around the globe. And there's Jesus, of course, at the center. And what Jesus is standing on 
are the two doors of death and hell that he's torn from their hinges like a mighty Samson. And below them in the darkness, I don't know if you can quite see it, in the black there are keys and broken locks and chains that have been snapped, all these instruments of torture. And Jesus is reaching out and grabbing these two figures by the wrists, Adam and Eve, grasping them by the wrists, not by the hand, because they're dead themselves in the grave, and so he seizes them by their limp wrists, and he takes them by the wrists, and, and as Jesus rises, he's dragging all these people up with him. And around uh, Adam and Eve are these different Old Testament saints. I think that might be King David on the very left. This is how Jesus rises from the dead. Not as a private person. He's not on his own personal expedition for his own fulfillment. Jesus rises on behalf of and as the head of the whole human race. And he's the one at the head of the army, and he's clearing space as the people of God surge upward behind him out of the grave, sharing in Jesus' immortal resurrection life. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he was not just resuscitated to his old mode of of being, like Lazarus, for example. I've been to the little church in Larnaca in Cyprus where there's Lazarus' second tomb. Not many people are buried twice. He was. And you can go down in the basement and see his tomb. I think his bones were stolen and sent to France somewhere. This poor fellow had to die not just once, but twice. Because when Jesus rose him from the dead, it was only a temporary gift. He was returned to his old, normal, mortal way of being. Jesus is not like that. He's been clothed with the power of an indestructible life. And now Jesus is riding on the clouds to the place of supreme cosmic dominion by the right hand of the Father, declared to be the Son of God with power. And he's sitting on the throne. He's holding his scepter. He's crushing his enemies, pouring out the spirit of Pentecost on his church, pushing back the hordes of death and evil and Satan, and he's bringing the nations to worship him in the heavenly Zion. When God triumphs over evil, the lowly rejoice. Because our enemies are His enemies. And His victory is our victory, if and only if we belong to Jesus. How foolish, how deluded in the extreme would it be for you to try to fight this three-headed apocalyptic monster on your own? You will be destroyed. But if Jesus reaches down and seizes you by your limp dead wrist and pulls you out of the grave, you will share in his immortality. The very fullness of God's own life will enter your own. Jesus is really the true and better David. Think of that, you know, children's story of David and Goliath. Here's the enemy of God and his people, this gigantic Philistine and these belching mockery and blasphemies and threats at God's people, spitting curses out of his mouth. And we're in this story as the trembling people of God on the hillside. I know we like to imagine ourselves as the heroes who would march up to, the, to Goliath. We're the ones shaking in our sandals and wetting our pants in terror, knowing that if we, if we marched up to the enemy, we'll just be smashed right into the ground. And then our David arrives. He rejects the sword and the armor of human power, and Jesus takes the instrument of weakness, the five smooth stones, the weakness of the cross, and he faces down 
the giant that has been terrifying us. He topples him to the ground. He cuts off the giant's head, and then he holds it aloft to show the stunned armies on both sides of the valley. And after that shocked silence, remember, the people of Israel get up and they begin to shout the cry of victory, and then they surge down the hillside to put the panicked Philistines to flight. And they're shouting, we have conquered. The victory is ours through David, through the son of David. The victory is ours. And if we've been raised with Christ, if we know His Spirit within us, if we've given Jesus, King Jesus, our humble little allegiance as God's Messiah and conqueror, we have already experienced the life-giving power of the Spirit of the resurrection. And as we're born again by the Holy Spirit, and the resurrection life of Jesus begins to work its way in our hearts, a small way, but a real way, that Holy Spirit is God's foretaste and down payment and guarantee that when we too go up through the clouds to the serene sunshine at God's right hand, we are going to share in that immortality. Eternal life has already begun in us. There is a spark of immortality in you, if you've believed in Jesus, that cannot be destroyed. There are forces that have been actively working to quench that spark, but it's being maintained by the mysterious power of God. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we are the immortal, indestructible, and unconquerable people of God through Jesus. And so we sing these songs of joy in the face of our enemies, which apart from faith really are powerful and terrifying. Here comes sin with a capital S, declaring, I have domination and victory over you. You must do what I say. And then we say, along with Paul in Romans chapter 8, the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in me. The resurrection is alive in my own heart as Jesus from his throne continuously pours power into my life. You know what? You need to hear the power of sin to enslave and dominate and shame and control you has been broken if you are a Christian. The only power that sin has left is the power of bluff. It's lying, and we're habituated to believe that, and it uses that power of bluff to its full extent, and it, it lies and deceives, and it whispers in your ear, you can't beat this sin. You're going to come back to this no matter how long you resist because I own you. You belong to me. You've always been mine. You are addicted to me and you cannot break it. And we believe the lie and we believe the bluff and we need to remind ourselves this morning the chains have already been broken. You don't need any chains broken today. They're already broken. The door to your prison cell has already been ripped off its hinges. You are called to get up in faith and walk out that door into the sunshine. 
And now we have the joyful task of allowing the resurrection life of Jesus as we throw from the shutters to shine into our lives and to say in faith, in Christ Jesus and only in Christ Jesus, I am not only a conqueror, I am more than a conqueror. I am super victorious through him. Of course, in myself, I'm tiny, I'm feeble, I'm weak, I'm foolish, I'm helpless, but it is no longer I who live. It is Christ Jesus who lives within me. And so we sing with joy in the face of sin. And then here's Satan, our ancient enemy, with his hordes of demons coming to intimidate and terrify and terrorize us and intimidate us. And I tell you, it would be foolish in the extreme to underestimate the power of the forces of darkness. We are fighting superhuman, super intelligent forces continuously bent sleeplessly on our destruction. But we stand against them in the name of Jesus. And we fly this banner, and on that banner is inscribed the figure of the foot of Jesus crushing the head of the serpent. And Satan is twisting, and he is writhing in his fury because he knows his time is short. It is very short. It is almost over because he's already been broken. He's already been defeated by Christ. And all that's left is for Jesus to return and finish him off and fling him forever into the lake of fire. And finally, we're going to stand before death. Unless Jesus returns first, each of us is going to have to go into death. We have a meeting appointed with the last enemy. And every time the church gathers, what we are doing is preparing each other for death. And I know there are people here who are already feeling the power of death at work in their own bodies, chronic pain and degenerative disease, and even brains that seem to be working against us. Outwardly, we are fading away. And while we are in this body, we groan. But we declare today that Christ, our God, is victorious over death. We declare that by faith, lifting our eyes, lifting our hearts on high to where Christ is. There was a preacher in Philadelphia who's long since gone to be with the Lord. His name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And Dr. Barnhouse's wife died when she was quite young. It was an especially tragic loss. And he took his, his two young boys, I believe, to the funeral. They went to the graveside. It was, a, it was like a dark winter day, just completely miserable. And then they got in the station wagon to drive back to a house that would always feel somewhat empty. And they stopped, their station wagon stopped at a red light and a large moving van pulled up beside them and its shadow fell over their station wagon so they were sitting there in the darkness. And Dr. Barnhouse turned around and he asked his boys, boys, would you rather be hit by that truck or by its shadow? And they said, well, dad, of course we'd rather be hit by the shadow. And he said to them, Jesus was hit by the truck of death so that your mother was only hit by its shadow. 
we are called one day to go through the valley of the shadow of death. Praise be to Jesus, not through death itself. We fear no evil because our Jesus has already gone before us to defeat that enemy. And when we go into the land of darkness, we're going to see the banner of Jesus flying over that fortress. And we will see the gates torn from their hinges and graffitied on the wall, I imagine it will say, Jesus was here. And therefore, none of us are truly going to die. We're simply going to fall asleep in Jesus. I love that when Jesus rose from the dead, he left his grave clothes and the, and the linen just neatly folded there behind him, as though to say, this is for all of my children when it comes time for them to die. They will be able to hold these to their noses and smell my own smell upon them and be comforted with my presence even in death. We're going to fall asleep in Jesus and have a good long rest from this weary world and then we're going to be woken up by the heavenly alarm clock, the trumpet of the archangel, summoning us up out of our graves to a life of resurrection immortality in God's new world. And in that day, we will be singing, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Our God is a God who saves. From our sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Let's pray as our worship team comes up. O mighty, sovereign, conquering Lord, we rejoice that your eye is on the weak and the helpless, on those who are oppressed and dominated and humiliated by our enemies and your enemies. And we thank you, O oh God, that for us and for our salvation, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to conquer. And in his presence, the enemy has fled. They have vanished like smoke in the wind like wax before the fire of His holy, victorious presence. O Lord, may all our days be marked by His victory. Fill us with the joy and with the power of the resurrection, that even in our weakness we might find You to be the all-sufficient God. And may the light of Easter morning be shining on our faces and in our hearts, that we might sing with joy, defying sin, defying Satan, defying death. May his victory shine in our lives. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this hymn of worship to Christ our God. <laughs>